It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone, it's your host Edward Ford and welcome to the Growth of Podcast, the show about all things B2B SaaS marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Advanced B2B, the growth marketing agency that helps B2B SaaS businesses generate sustainable revenue growth through marketing. So if you're looking for an agency partner who will help you get measurable results from your marketing, then check out advancedb2b.com for more info. Now joining us today on the show is Derek O'Carroll, CEO of Bright Pearl, and today we're talking about their incredible turnaround story from near failure to over 40% year-on-year growth. When Derek took over as CEO of Bright Pearl about five years ago, he described the company as a distressed asset. It was burning cash, had very high churn, and a culture where talented people were rowing in different directions. Fast forward to today and Bright Pearl is growing rapidly and Derek has masterminded a successful SaaS turnaround story. Derek opens up about the three-pronged strategy he developed that was built around realigning product market fit, growing ACV, and building a talented team where the right people are in the right place. He talks about the impact the strategy has had and how they solve their big churn problem, reducing it from 28% to 8%. There's all this and a whole lot more. So here we go with episode 67 of the Growth Up Podcast with Derek O'Carroll, CEO at Bright Pearl. Welcome to another episode of the Growth Up Podcast. And it's my pleasure to welcome Derek O'Carroll to the show who is CEO at Bright Pearl. So Derek, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Growth of Podcast. Thank you, Edward. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, I am really looking forward to this episode as we're digging into your pretty incredible four-year turnaround story at Bright Pearl. And I thought to kick things off before we jump into the actual turnaround, let's get a feel for how things were back then. So what was the situation like when you stepped in as CEO all those years ago? I would, ca- I would characterize it um, uh, almost like a distressed asset in terms of uh, the financial performance of the business was very, very poor. It was burning cash. Um, it had a very high churn. Uh, it had uh, a culture which essentially was characterized by very talented people, but all pulling in different directions. Um, and it had... Um, uh, a very poor product market fit was characterized by uh, very poor churn, which which was obviously uh, causing major issues. So, well, it wasn't a healthy business in any shape or form uh, in terms of its financial performance. Yeah. So I think almost everything you don't want as a SaaS CEO. So why did you want to take on that challenge of managing this turnaround? Well, my, my background uh, was startups in the 90s. Um, on my own and then with uh, colleagues from the US. Um, and we sold the last one into a large company called Symantec. And I had my first order that year. And my wife asked me not to do more startups for a while. And I thought I wouldn't last long in a big company, but in actual fact, I ended up being the landing and launch pad for their acquisitions, running their security practice. I ended up being seconded out to uh, Germany to be based in Munich to to do a bit of a turnaround there, uh, and then I ended up um, uh, part of the team who took Norton Antivirus from CDs into the online sort of cloud delivery model that uh, is now called SaaS. And at the end of the ten year period, I said to my wife, 
really want to get back into the cotton thrust of the real world and go and apply the learnings over the last 20 years uh, into a team and into uh, a market that is undergoing disruption. Um, and I went out researching the market. I looked at telephony, I looked at presence-based technologies, I looked at e-commerce, and my criteria were pretty simple. I didn't want to do a startup like, you know, blank sheet of paper, build product from scratch. I wanted to go into something that was potentially had a high bar to entry for others. In other words, it was complex. It was B2B. It was in a sector that was ripe for disruption, which was obviously e-commerce. And I was looking for something that uh, would be get benefit from my skills around uh, the go-to-market side of the house, in particular things like product market fit and a maniacal focus on getting the unit economics right. And I basically then met um, the guys at Notion, uh, which are a very popular and successful uh, SaaS specialist investor here in the UK. They're called Chris Topman there, a great guy. And we got chatting and he said, hey, you should have a look at Bright Pearl. I think it fits your profile. And they were looking for a CEO and um, went through the process and I decided that it fitted my criteria. And I joined in May, agreed in April 2016. And my first day was May 2016. Right, that's incredible. And I think also fantastic that you're around when SaaS first came along and there was that move from CDs and hardware to pure software. So for sure, I think a lot of things you could have brought to the table back then. And I know that one of the first things you did after becoming CEO was interview a lot of people. So employees, partners, customers to kind of figure out what some of the real challenges were. So what did you find from those interviews? And could you identify, say, the three biggest challenges? Yeah, so I'm a strong believer in trying to get to the nub of the issue. And when you have a complex offering like uh, Bright Pearl's capable software stack, very important for me to get to a point of simplicity where I can easily map the product's benefits and features to essentially jobs of work that a customer would hire us to perform on their behalf. And once they hire us to do that particular job of work, we've got to be capable, we've got to be available, and we've got to add value to that customer in terms of some form of save time. So that's why I always, whenever I've been involved in uh, companies, I go straight to the source. And um, I created a bunch of questions uh, and I spent, I think it was about 90 days, I spent just talking to the staff, the customers and the employees. And what I learned out of that was, Number one, the, there was multiple proof points that highlighted one simple fact was the product market fit of the company was, was wrong. And when you have a solution which is extremely capable, pointed at a customer set that in, in those days was small online retailers who are time poor, you are never able to create a value proposition to a client that never has the time to understand the true scope of what you're offering them. And that was problem number one. Uh, the product market fit was wrong. They were selling a very complex product, which was super capable into a small uh, customer base that never had the time of day to understand the value of the product. So that, that was problem number one. The second pro problem was the belief of the team themselves. So when talking to the teams, they didn't believe that their product was suitable for any market. They 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 thought that you know customers were churning high, they didn't like it. And so there was a real belief problem within the team. 
Um, and when I actually started talking to them about the concept of selling to bigger customers into a customer base that would appreciate the value of the product, that was the second problem. I got to bring the whole team along um, uh, with me. Uh, and then the third problem was the capability mapping of the team. Um, and what I mean by that is we had uh, a team and team structure which uh, ensured that no one was able to participate toward a coalition of effort to go after a common goal because of the way the company was structured, where it was positioned and how they were building software. So they were the, they were the three main areas of, um, of, of issue. And then the fourth one was obviously they were burning a lot of cash, uh, which was causing problems with their investors and their runway of cash was very, 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 very small. So I had to fix that issue as well, but they were the three things. Yeah, that's great to hear more about the challenges. So these were the bigger challenges that you identified. And from there, you built a strategy around three key points, which were realigning product market fits, growing ACV, and then getting the right people in the right roles. So let's go through your strategy and go through these points one at a time. Mm -hmm. And let's start with the first one. So how did you actually go about realigning product market fit? So as I said earlier, the interviews were the first part of that in terms of me um, validating what I thought was the case that um, we were selling to the wrong market. But then I needed to go and validate that for the investors. So I actually contracted with a firm uh, called the Alexander Group that I'd done some work with in the past. They were based at the time in San Francisco. And I asked them to go and interview the customers using the jobs and work descriptions that I'd created and interview the customers that I would like to sell to. So they weren't my customers today. They were the customers I would like to sell to. And I asked them to score us in terms of the perceived value that we would offer those customers for different areas of the product against the leader in the market, which at that point was a company called NetSuite. And uh, that exercise basically was, it was almost like a blind tasting. The companies that they interviewed didn't know who we were, but they could easily understand the jobs of work that we would be hired for. And they would score them in terms of the value that they would get from that. And that resulted in a report which basically said, actually, the Bright Pearl offering is comparable to NetSuite. It is um, also capable of serving much larger customers because that was the key area that um, the team hadn't really realized is they were very poor. And so they didn't realize that they had very large customers using the Bright Pearl platform. I remember one in particular was turning over 200 million a year. They're now a global brand. Uh, but they were being charged by Bright Pearl about $2,500 per year for the use of the whole system, right? So that was, that was the other key important point is that the product through that analysis was capable of supporting larger customers. So the validation point was there as well as the opportunity point was there. And that was reinforced by a third party uh, through that study. And it took about four to five months to get all of that information together and then present that back to the team. And they were all very surprised. And then the board were sort of delighted. And then it, 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 the key metric for us back then was, what was the percentage of our annual recurring revenue that we were getting from our customers as it pertains to their GMV, their gross merchandising volume, so their turnover. And back then we were taking a very, very small amount um, relative to the size of business we were processing, if that makes sense, hopefully it does. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was 
super valuable research and a great segue into the next point, which was addressing the pricing strategy. And one of your key goals was growing average deal size. And you spoke there about large businesses paying you about 2000 per year. So how did you then go on and convince customers uh, and other people to actually pay more for your product? Okay. So there, there was two parts to this. One was when you decide to compete with a larger company, you have to recognize the fact that once they see you on the competitive map, they will do everything to outgun you from an R&D perspective because they can throw a lot more dollars at the problem than you can. So it's important for your this, the approach that we took was through the interviews with the customers, we identified areas that the customers really didn't like that were not so much associated with the product, but more about the business model. And one of those issues was uh, identified as being pricing. Customers told us, these were the customers that we wanted to sell to, by the way, that they didn't like the pricing structure in the market, whereby they'd sign up to a service and then they'd get essentially surprise bills as they tried to get uh, new features built or they asked for scripts to be built on top of the platform. So there was a very big problem with transparency of pricing and customers didn't like that. So we said okay, as we go to market, we're going to have an extremely transparent-based pricing model, which obviously is utility-based pricing today, as as your listeners probably understand. And then in our market, there's a trend of automation. So a lot of SaaS companies of old have charged on a per-user basis, you know, login basis. But for our system, one of the key parts of it then and now that we've really invested in is automation. And obviously, if a system is automating processes, there's going to be less people logging into it to check orders. And so that was the other uh, key driver for us moving to utility-based pricing. And then the problem was, well, what's the optimum price point that you go to market with to ensure you drag along your customers and they see the value? And um, we worked, uh, we did some research in the market, a uh, very good company in, in, in the States called um, ProfitWell, Patrick Campbell and crew. They do a great job of helping people break down pricing strategies. But in the main, it sort of boils down to a couple of key areas to look at. One is the the cost of service, which is sort of a a no-brainer. You know, how much does it cost you to deliver the service and what's your margin on that? So that's one feed. And then what's the perceived value uh, through interviewing customers of, of that service? And then what's the cost of the alternative, which is the competitive pricing. And by looking at those three points, you're then able to triangulate what you believe should be your uh, optimum pricing point. And then you plug that into a utility model so that your smaller customers pay less when they join the platform. But as they grow, they pay more, but they pay less per unit processed. In other words, you can't be a tax on growth you have to have a model where as your customers grow, you're giving them more features and capability, um, but you're not perceived um, uh, as a tax on growth, if that makes sense. And so that was the research phase of the pricing, um, which gave us the model. And then we had to do the contractual side of things, which I would say to anyone who's looking at changing pricing, don't underestimate how long it takes because a company of the age I had inherited, there was a lot of you know deals that were done in the past where people had been committed or signed up to you know four or five years of 
committed pricing or caps on price increases. So there's a lot of noise, historical noise that we had to work through and put everyone on standardized contracts where it was very clear that everyone was on utility pricing. I think it took it took me about three years to get 100% coverage on all customers and get rid of all of the non-standard deals that were done in the past, if that makes sense. Wow, yeah, absolutely. And we're definitely seeing a move towards utility-based pricing in SaaS. So it's great to hear how you made that change and grew ACV. Mm-hmm. And then I guess we can move to the third piece. And that was about the team and making sure the right people were in place to move the business forward, which again is another pretty big challenge. So how did you actually make that happen? We got to get people on board with the the mission, um, but it had to be bottoms up. So when we did the discovery phase in the first 90 days, we spoke to all of the employees and I spoke to them all. Um, I asked them questions like, how do decisions get made around you? How's your voice represented? Where do you spend your time? Um, what are the feedback loops with other departments that you view are important to your success? Questions like that. And what came out of that was a list of barriers that the team told me really pissed them off and slowed them down in terms of them moving forward and getting value in their working life. And we took a took an approach where we rolled those barriers up. We called them um, fitness projects and we educated the team on a core principle, which is in today's world, anyone can copy your product. So the number one differentiator is actually the organization and how the organization works together. And we got them uh, educated on that core tenant. And then we rolled out these projects, 34 projects there was at the time, covering a whole bunch of aspects in all parts of the business. And we asked the team to volunteer outside of uh, normal hours uh, to volunteer to those projects and take a role of either being a driver or being informed or a, con- a contributor or an approver. And uh, by, by doing that, we allowed teams to, be, to have access to the problem and then they were part of the solution. Uh, but also because it was managed in terms of planning and outcomes over a 24 month period, because obviously these things take time, we very much got, we very quickly got to see uh, the capabilities of the team uh, relative to their roles and who was a good fit for what we were trying to do and who wasn't. Uh, There's that old saying, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And essentially that platform approach and the continuous improvement project approach with an eye on fitness, organizational fitness, uh, got us to, you know, people left because they felt this is too much for me. Uh, The pace of of which uh, we expected everyone to work really shot up and people left. Um, And then, you know, we came to agreements where people who were not right for roles moved to other roles. So we had a lot of career movements within it. Um, and then we went out and hired uh, a set of new uh, people uh, to join the business. And I'd say one key area of that was the U.S. market. When I joined, the U.S. was a small part of our business. But the goal was to become, I wanted that to become a major part of our business. But our office was in San Francisco, downtown Market Street in San Francisco. It was very expensive. And everyone in the office, their skill set was really focused at the old customer base. And I needed a a team that had experience to sell to bigger customers. And so we took the decision to close the San Francisco office in in the first year. And we restarted the business in Austin, Texas. 
um, in 2017. And that was, that was a pretty abrupt thing to do, but um, the team bought into it. They understood the logic and it resulted in a whole bunch of benefits um, uh, to the team and to the business. And today we have a highly performant, engaged uh, team and the culture is one of transparency and accountability, but it's their culture, you know, uh, I've just helped create it, but it's come from the team and the values that we operate on has come from the team. And that's really, really important. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I've also heard you speak about the importance of competing on culture. And I think finding the right talent, obviously, is super important for any SaaS company to grow, but it's not easy. And you spoke about building the team up in Austin, Texas, in the States, as well as here in the UK and Bristol. So in terms of recruiting people, how do you actually go about hiring great people to join the Brightpool team and make sure that they are that perfect culture fit? Well, it's the number one challenge. (laughs) <laughs> that, 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 it's, it's the hardest thing to do, I think, as a CEO. So, you know, it's not easy. There's no silver bullet. But I think the concept of tenacity with regard to holding out for the right founding member, for me, is the key thing. So and what I mean by that is top talent attracts more top talent. But if you're in a situation where your company is more about vision and less about performance, you obviously can't attract top talent uh, easily. You have to sell them on the vision and you have to convince them that you've got the chops and the skills and the board of the chops and the skills to see it through. And, um, and with that sort of maniacal focus, you have to take your time on the founding members. Do not rush your foundational team because if you get that wrong, you will attract um, mediocrity thereafter. You have to get the founding team right. And if it means that you fail fast, which is a principle I would encourage, um, you should do that. And that's what we did. So our first round of hires um, uh, that in the States uh, w- was an absolute disaster. <laughs> I would say that, you know, but we, but we understood quickly we got it wrong and we got it wrong for a number of reasons. We failed fast and we ch- changed really quickly and we went to the board and, you know, I apologize, got the mea culpa out. Um, but reinforce the need that I just knew we'd made a mistake. We needed to chop it and start again. And we didn't get it all wrong, but I'm just talking about key roles uh, we, we got wrong in the States. And that that approach uh, and that openness to fail fast allowed us to ultimately secure an amazing foundational team. And once you have that foundational team in, they attract other A players. Um, and that's what's happened. And that's why now today, the U.S. is over 60% of my business and is the fastest growing part of my business. Um, and that's that's fantastic. But it took me about a year and a half to get the whole team set up. And, and now we're off at the races and, and, and the team are excellent and they're all having fun winning and uh, evolving their careers as the company grows, which is our number one job to do on their behalf. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic to hear. And I think one final thing I would like to ask you about your challenges is churn. You spoke earlier at the beginning of the episode that churn was a big problem when you took over. So how did you actually solve the churn problem? As that's, I think, one of the fastest ways to drive your SaaS business into the ground. Yeah, it is. It is. So there's no silver bullet, as your listeners will know, to to solving churn. It's a multifaceted problem. Um, But we broke down the, the, the journey of a customer from beginning to end on the platform over a life cycle of seven years seven years and we used uh we basically focused on building up the data set to really understand why we were losing customers at each stage in the journey right and uh there was a couple of key things that i would um 
share with your listeners that really helped us turn the dial. The first one is to ensure that you map the product's capability to the target market that you're going after uh, with an eye on optimizing the fit. In other words, don't fall into the trap of trying to sell to customers that maybe you should be selling to in two years' time. Uh, avoid a situation where salespeople are selling tomorrow's churn at the outset. And that means be maniacal on focusing on who are the ideal customer profile, get quantifiable about get quantified about it, really focus on the metrics, and then build playbooks, which are training playbooks into the sales teams on uh, how to sell, how to sell value, but also when to know to walk away. Because that was that was the number one driver of the improvement in churn was stopping selling tomorrow's churn. And so, for example, like we we sell to, to retailers now uh, from one no less than one million up to two hundred and fifty million. When I joined, uh, the sales team would be quite happy taking a customer on who was five hundred thousand dollars in turnover, and they'd sell them for four thousand bucks or something like that. But obviously, that's a huge source of churn because the bankruptcy levels in that size of business are very very high, and the product market fit wasn't right. Back to my earlier point. So we stopped that. We said, no, no one's allowed to sell to any customer that doesn't have more than a million dollars in turnover and uh, has been in business for more than two years. And then we also put a cap on the size of customer they could sell to. So in year one, we said, you're not allowed to sell from one million, or, uh, sorry, uh, uh, more than a customer turning over 30 million for year one, because we knew we had some product issues that had been identified in the discovery around scale we knew that when you got to a certain size, the product would slow down and piss people off, piss customers off. So we said, don't sell to those customers until we fix those problems. So in year one, we didn't allow anyone to sell bigger than 30 million. Now we sell up to 250 million because we've, we've removed those barriers. But controlling who you sell to and avoiding uh, churn was, is the key thing to start the journey on improving churn. So that was point number one. And then the second one, is to recognize that the risk of churn appears if you're in B2B in the first year. So, so a focus on, a maniacal focus on adoption and investing in customer success so that you have in a very tight playbook from when the contract is signed and the customer goes through the onboarding process, that has to be extremely well laid out. It has to be very tight in terms of the contracts that you use to ensure the customer knows what they're getting and that you manage their expectations at a contract level so that they don't try and ask you for more that actually you didn't deliver because it's a cloud platform and it's not customizable, it's configurable. And then the, the, the final point is keep an eye on past value delivered. So when you've got a customer up and running and they've been deployed, look at your organizational structure and make sure you're investing in the first year and subsequent years to roll out value-added services that, for example, do a health check on a customer, a serious health check, using data that you have that they don't, and give them information that allows them to see where they could be more efficient, how they could improve their shipping legacy, uh, shipping time or their invoicing time or their forecasting to make better use of cash being tied up in inventory, so on and so forth. So don't underestimate the importance of post-contract uh, adoption services and customer success agents who are focused on uh, one key metric, which would be dollar retained revenue, 
which is the measure of how much your customers buy in subsequent years once they're deployed. And that, that, that when you look at the economics of that investment, you'll get much, much more bang for your buck um, in the retention side of the house by investing in that area, because obviously investing in new businesses is, is expensive, but obviously very, very necessary. So I'd say those three things you should target on if you want to get churned down. That's what we did. Uh, and it's worked to where our churn now is below 8%. And when I joined, it was 28%. Wow, that is quite the drop. And I think those were some really good points. And I think it takes a lot of discipline to focus on selling to a certain segment and not sell below or even above a certain size. So I think, great, you were able to implement that. And I think one other thing I'd like to ask is that you raised from a company called Sage a few months back. So why did you decide to take on funding? Well, so we got to the point where the unit economics, you know, the SaaS metrics were all green and we're clipping along at a very good growth, um, uh, you know, 35 to 40% growth. And we got, we got to the point where we weren't burning any money, right? So we were uh, cash flow positive, uh, which is a great thing to get to, but you're in a market that's extremely hot, right? Uh, there's a lot of growth occurring in our market and we're really well positioned. So we run the risk of uh, winning the battle and losing the war by not investing heavily enough in the business at a period of growth. So we decided last year, let's go win the war. Let's not just be in a position where we win the battle. And winning the battle, by the way, was staying organically growth-orientated and using our profits to invest in the company. In other words, not burning any investment cash anymore. But that has its issues with regard to growth. So we decided to go out to market and look for fundraising to accelerate growth, uh, both in the product, go to market expansion in, in known areas of return, and then obviously looking at inorganic opportunities as well through, through, through acquisitions. And we looked at the sort of private equity, growth equity type of um, providers of cash out there. And then we also looked at a couple of strategics and it got to the point where there was a lot of synergy by us choosing Sage over the private equity people, in particular access to the technology that they've got, um, not only in Sage, excuse me, but also in um, Sage Intact, which is a cloud-based uh, um, accounting ERP solution they purchased a number of years ago. So it give us access to tech, give us access to distribution. We really liked the team at Sage. We felt that these guys we could work with, which was a, a key point in terms of cultural fit. And, uh, and it's a minority investment. So, um, uh, you know, we still have control over our objective um, to become a category leader. So that's why we chose Sage. We raised $33 million. Um, but we are going to be, uh, you know, we're, we're investing about a third of that in the business, a third of it into acquisitions, and a third of it will always be there for a rainy day. And that's how we're going to build value uh, over time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you spoke there about going on to win the war. So a final question, what's next for you and where are you going to focus from here? Well, so our, 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 our number one uh, area of focus is we spent so much time getting the product market fit done and getting the unit economics into a place where we know if we put a dollar in, we know what we're going to get back. And that's what all SaaS leaders are, are after. So now we're going to expand. So it's a focus on discipline execution on executing the playbooks that we've got in each department to expand the business and get to 50 million R by 2023, which is a sustainable growth profile of about 40% R growth every year. Um, 
up to 2023. And in doing so, become uh, what we believe we're well positioned to be, which is the number one uh, digital operating platform for retail. Uh, and when I say retail, I do include wholesalers as well. And that's very much our goal. And to work with our strategic partners like Shopify, we do a lot of work with Shopify. They are obviously one of the, the leaders on the sort of front of house, so to speak, the e-commerce platform. We plug in nicely and handle everything after the buy button for omni-channel plays. And that'll be a big area of focus for us. I mentioned earlier on automation. Um, it's, it's interesting about automation because, you know, consumers out there who buy stuff online, when it goes wrong and you track that back to, well, why did that order uh, get screwed up? You usually find that it was human error. So by rolling out more automation and removing the number of times a customer or sorry, an employee touches an order if you're a merchant, the better chance you have of getting better positive reviews and return business. So automation is a big, big area uh, of focus for us. And then obviously with um, the partnership with Sage, our customers are, you know, we sell to very large customers now, global brands doing direct consumer plays and manufacturers doing direct, direct consumer plays. So therefore, we, we need to be able to offer multi-company accounting, which is what we're working on with our partners, particularly um, uh, the recent deal that we did with Sage. We'll be announcing some cool stuff uh, uh, at the middle of the year. Awesome. Sounds good. Quite the plan. And I think e-commerce is definitely a good space to be in uh, right now. So uh, yeah, I think this was super good. And we can actually move to our closing questions and our Fast Five challenge. So Derek, to wrap things up, I will ask you five questions and all you need to do is answer as quickly as possible. So are you ready? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's give it a shot. So the first question, what's the one book you would recommend others to read? Uh, I uh, Avoid the Bill Trap by Melissa Perry. Nice. Second question, SaaS company you love and why? I have to say Shopify because they're amazing culture, amazing product, growth is off the charts and they're a key partner of ours. Yeah, their story is phenomenal, that's for sure. Third question, favorite place to learn about marketing online? Oh, uh, I have to say, I, I know it's very bland, but I just use Google all the time. I know that's not the answer you want, <laughs> but I, I, I just have questions all the time and I go straight to Google and I just go from there. There's no particular marketing resource I, I, I look at. And my own team as well. I've got an amazing marketing team. Uh, but yeah, sorry, Google and my team. Oh, that's a good answer and just goes to show the importance of SEO. So uh Great to hear. Uh, fourth question, most important growth metric? Uh, well, for, for, for me, it's definitely um, lifetime value, customer lifetime value. Perfect. And then fifth and final question, best piece of advice for fellow SaaS CEOs? Um, don't underestimate the importance of managing expectations with the board. Don't overshoot uh, and, and be conservative in your plans and beat them. Nice. Awesome. Well, Derek, I have to say this was absolutely awesome. And thank you so much for coming on the Growth of Podcast. No worries. It's been a delight. Thank you very much. Andrew. That was Derek O'Carroll on Bright Pearl's turnaround story from near failure to plus 40% year on year growth. So thank you so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the show, we'd love for you to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And as ever, you're always welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Nordic Edward or connect on LinkedIn. So thank you so much for listening to the Growth of Podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency Advance B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off and make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories.
risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different